0: Welcome to the very first episode of the Resident Evil side quest series of the main quest podcast. This is going to be a nine part series where I venture into the story, lore, and characters of the mainline Resident Evil games. I'm doing 0 through 7 and hopefully by the time we get to Resident Evil 7, Resident Evil 8 will be out and I will have played... And then I can finish the series off with that game. To be clear, I will only be covering the mainline remakes. So Resident Evil Remake, Resident Evil 2 Remake, and Resident Evil 3 Remake. Since the original games will be part of the regular main quest episodes uh, several years down the road from now. Resident Evil 4 will also be a regular main quest episode, but since I'm only focusing on story and characters here for this series, there will be plenty of other things to talk about with Resident Evil 4 in the future, and, you know, how much that game has shaped modern gaming for today. So no, I won't be talking about Code Veronica, Survivor, Dead Aim, Outbreak or any of the other 15 side games within this series. The idea for this series sparked when the Resident Evil 3 remake came out earlier this year, and I realized I have a lot of holes in my knowledge of the Resident Evil story, and I thought maybe if I play these back-to-back and really dissect what's happening, it'll be a lot of fun. It should be a lot of fun, and and still leave a lot of questions unanswered because if you're, you're already a fan of the franchise you know it gets pretty convoluted it's convoluted out the gate which we will find out soon enough and so that's the setup for this side quest series if you're brand new to the podcast welcome definitely go check out the regular numbered episodes in the feed those are slightly different from what you'll hear in this series i may touch on some aspects of the gameplay, design, and, and music, uh, but it will not be the focus of this series. I'll only be mentioning those things in passing to give a little more understanding of what's happening uh within the game that I'm talking about. And lastly, I will not be giving out any kind of recommendations or anything like that. I'm just gonna let the story and the characters speak for themselves. I have played many of the Resident Evil games, and I have equally missed just as many of them. Out of the eight mainline games, I have only played three and a half, and so I'm purging all info from my memory about this series and basically diving straight into the story like a newly infected monkey or alligator and pretending like Everything that came before these quote-unquote newer games never existed. So I say, so long original Resident Evil 1 through 3. I never knew ya. So, without further ado, I'm going to let the one and only Ward Sexton take it from here as we dive into... Resident Evil 0. like we're starting in very troubled waters. Sometimes it's very hard to get your dream project off the ground, especially back in 1998 when the original Resident Evil 0 was being developed by Tosei and Capcom Production Studio 3, intended to be released on the Nintendo 64. The entire game was scrapped as Capcom didn't believe they could fit such an astonishing vision on a meager 64 megabyte cartridge. Writers Noburo Shugamura, Hiromichi Nakamoto, and Yuichi Miyashita planted the seeds for the game's concept back in 1995. They had an idea for a team of unsuspecting military personnel to get trapped in a mansion. But why would these soldiers be in the mansion in the first place? How would they get there? Perhaps the idea was still a little too close to another game that came out only six years prior sweet home. Surely the writers wanted something as suspenseful as that little JRPG. But we now have the advent of 3D and the ability to control a camera. And so with this new technology, the crew could really set out to make a quite horrific and atmospheric game. When Capcom hired director Koji Oda and producer Tatsuo Minami, the team knew having the game set in one central location just wouldn't be enough. And with the sixth generation, the GameCube, right around the corner, Nintendo was pretty much getting ready to kill off the N64, and so Capcom Production Studio 3 would go on to rebuild the entire game from the ground up for the next generation. And with more RAM and storage capacity... The team could create larger set pieces and expand and add locations to the game, as well as higher fidelity cutscenes, better character animations, and of course, in general, just uh, putting more things on the screen at once. It's as if Oda knew Train to Busan was going to be the best zombie movie of the 2010s. You know, Oda asked himself, probably, what if this game did take place on a train? And what a creative change of pace this is from the uh, typical survival horror games that came before Resident Evil Zero. Which, title alone, you know, you look at it and it doesn't make too much sense. What is a Resident Evil? An evil that resides somewhere? The name is kind of thought-provoking. Perhaps it's the evil that potentially lives in all of us the hunger, and bloodlust that motivates us all to be successful with the zero being the morals of which all humankind should be measured from nothing. In Japan, the game was to be called Biohazard Zero. A little on the nose for what happens in this story, and the number zero actually makes uh, zero sense, So, here in America, where Cash is God and Brooklyn tough guy hardcore outfit Biohazard was feeling uncharacteristically litigious, the name had to go, and so Resident Evil it became in the West. The zero, ultimately meaning, you know, the absence of everything, I suppose you could say, is the trigger in which the origin starts. Every groundbreaking first entry to a long-running franchise, we not only get a text crawl, but a helpful narration of said text crawl if you're unable to read, which is going to be a problem because there's a lot of reading in this game. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. The story is immediately confusing right out of the gate. And you think back to such masterful text crawls like Star Wars, Uh, The first one, specifically, A New Hope, where time and place, good and evil, are expertly woven and explained with only 70 seconds. Clearly, our self-aware director Oda, I feel like he's just wanting to get straight to the point and maybe let the action speak for itself. Let the player unravel the story. And this works, sure, you always want to leave a little mystery when you jump into a horror game like this gives you you know that unending unnerving feeling and right out of the bat we're throwing out three different locations and Oda's not really telling you where the story takes place and it kind of leaves you a little disoriented the team behind this game really wants to make sure that we are on our guard the entire time We are introduced to the Umbrella Corporation, who seems to have caused some sort of disaster. It's only alluded to who they are, but I guess it's up to us again to find out more about who they are and what they've accomplished. Separate from that, we have to find out how the T-Virus was created. And so then that leads me to ask, what is a T-Virus? What is that? Vaguely knowing... You know, coming into this, that this is a zombie game, surely it has something to do with why there are zombies in the first place. Perhaps this is the incident that is tied to the three locations, Raccoon City, Rockfort Island, and the second Raccoon City, Raccoon City 2, Electric Boogaloo. I mean, uh, no, it's called Sheena Island, I'm sorry. but They call it the second Raccoon City. It's really confusing, the, the wording is very confusing here. And the mansion incident? What is that about? There's a real origin story bubbling up inside this paramount horror title. We're already presented with so much volume in terms of story, it's any wonder that this game was followed up by seven sequels. For my public transportation writers out there, you ever get that thing where if you have a window seat and there's a mysterious streak on the window... You ever just like sit there and wonder, like, what is this? Like, what left this here? Where might it have come from? Is this streak on the outside or the inside of the window? And like, you don't really want to touch it or smell it to find out. OK, but now what if it was a leech with giant teeth? This intro is very uncomfortable and It isn't the giant leeches raining down on this train full of commuters that makes it so uncomfortable. It's the weird androgynous anime man singing opera on top of a mountain who is seemingly watching these leeches swarm and take over this train and its passengers. It's actually pretty horrifying, as horrifying as the scarabs in The Mummy starring Hollywood hunk Brendan Fraser. These things are nearly identical, and, you know, I'd rather have... Brendan Fraser slide into my mouth uh, than a leech. I could say that much. Two hours after this incident, we are flying high above Raccoon Forest, where we're introduced to our main cast, the Special Tactics and Rescue Service Bravo Team, or STARS Bravo Team for short. Now, STARS is a special division of the Raccoon City Police Department. Bravo Team is made up of Richard Aiken, Edward Dewey, Captain Enrico Marini, Kenneth J. Sullivan, and Rebecca Chambers. Three of these characters are quickly killed off soon enough, and the others will briefly meet, and one of them we won't see again until the very end. The only character we really need to focus here, the only character we really need to focus on here is Rebecca. Unfortunately, Rebecca is a female, and so there's not too much to focus on as far as uh, character building with her. Her story is not entirely intriguing at all, and is overshadowed by the dramatic events of her male counterpart, who we will meet soon enough. Newly assigned to Bravo Team, her lack of combat experience is only matched by her intellectual prowess, which is slowly dismantled as we progress through the story. At the age of 18, Rebecca graduated with a bachelor's in chemistry and is now part of rear security and serves as Bravo Team's rookie medic. The game, though originally released in um, 2002, takes place in July of 1998. So we can be certain that after the briefing, Rebecca put on some headphones, slid a mixtape into her Walkman, and during the flight, relived some really rough times through the boy's mind and how's it going to be maybe even i don't know swooning over steven tyler's angelic voice over that uh, armageddon song which is actually pretty on point since we're talking about zombies during her introduction rebecca tells us that bravo team has been dispatched to investigate some terrible cannibalistic murders that have been occurring in the forest in particular the nearby Arclay mountains Soon after, the helicopter experiences some issues with its engine and has to perform an emergency landing. The team quickly happens upon an overturned truck, part of a convoy that was escorting a convicted criminal, ex-marine, Billy Cohen. With a pile of bodies surrounding the convoy and Cohen nowhere in sight, Bravo team immediately suspects Cohen to be the culprit. Now, this Billy Cohen guy sounds pretty dangerous. We don't uh, really find out about his war crimes until a little later, but he's basically a serial killer based on the documents Rebecca finds. Court order for transportation. Prisoner Billy Cohen, ex-lieutenant, 26 years old. Court martialed and sentenced to death July 22nd. Prisoners to be transferred to the Regathon base for execution. Those poor soldiers, they were good men, just doing their jobs, and that scum murdered them and escaped and by fines, I mean they were conveniently in the overturned convoy truck Cohen bes i'm I'm going to keep referring to him as Cohen because I cannot say the name Billy without going oh Billy, which is of course. From 1996's The Cable Guy, where Jim Carrey stars opposite of Matthew Broderick as his very annoying, borderline stalker friend, much like our man Cohen here, who has rape energy all over him when he is finally introduced. Oh, Billy. <coughs> Speaking of rape energy, Andy Dick is also in The Cable Guy. But uh, yeah, so... Besides Cohen's creepy vibes, uh, Cohen was being transported to a facility to carry out a death sentence. Dewey here immediately jumps to conclusions, and instead of carrying out their mission to investigate the nearby murders in the Arclay Mountains, coordinates a manhunt to track down Cohen, who is said to be brutal and ruthless. Our friend is brutal and ruthless. Honestly, as the player. I'd rather investigate a bunch of cannibalistic murders than track down a maniacal PTSD ridden Marine. The latter is typical and it just comes with the job. The former is what true crime podcasts are made out of. And so our team splits up and Rebecca eventually comes upon a stopped train, the Ecliptic Express, the very same train that we just saw moments ago that was attacked by those leeches. Despite the immediate turn in plot, and I mean immediate, you know, it's only been about five minutes at this point. The woodland setting, the dimly lit abandoned train, just kind of hauntingly sitting in the middle of the woods at what I presume to be dusk, while the strings of a violin are being violently shaken, makes for a pretty intimidating setting. If it's not obvious enough, you know, we know. Things aren't going to go well for Bravo Team as soon as that helicopter lands. And now it's indisputable. Upon entering the train car, Rebecca is greeted with silence. And there's clearly been an incident here. The inside of the train car is in disarray. And as she searches the cars, you can't help but notice it how brilliant the camera work is in this game. And it stays that way throughout the entire playthrough. The camera is always fixed on one area of the room. It doesn't follow our characters around like in any normal 3D game. It really gives the train a very cramped feeling, especially when you're not able to control the camera. And then on top of that, you're incapable of being able to see directly in front of you or directly in back of you until you've moved further along the train. It really does deliver a ton of suspense, though necessarily there shouldn't be any concern at the moment but that moment is fleeting as rebecca enters a train car full of corpses and we already know what happened to these people sort of they're all off-screen deaths but we know the leeches were the culprits our sweet naive protagonist rebecca lets her presence be known as she sees the bodies perhaps hoping a survivor will respond And there certainly is a response as one of the corpses rises out of its seat and starts shambling towards Rebecca. Naturally, she turns to run, as anybody would, but is cornered by two more. Obviously not the best situation for a medic to be in, but luckily she has her security training. Sort of. She can't walk and shoot or run and shoot. In fact, she can't run at all you know, when we're controlling Rebecca, she firmly plants her feet and rotates 360 degrees as she aims down her sights. It's almost like she controls like a, like a, a tank or something. Quite the gameplay choice, but I suppose it makes these zombies encounters much more dramatic. After the initial encounter with the undead, Rebecca continues to search the train by herself and, eventually a man, with a super badass tribal tattoo, very 2002, sneaks up on her and is revealed to be Billy Cohen. Holding a gun to her head, his rape energy emerges right off the bat as his first lines in the entire game are, So you know me. Been fantasizing about me? Billy. Lieutenant Cohen. So, you seem to know me. Been fantasizing about me, have you? She explains that she's a fucking cop with stars and that the team is out looking for him. When Cohen hears about this, he just walks away. He acknowledges that the police are looking for him. He's confronted by basically someone slightly above the rank of a police officer and he has that person cornered and he walks away i have to say you know that's respectful stupid because his crimes have him penned as an incredibly dangerous man but respect and rebecca she really pays no mind she goes after him and like meagerly says you're under arrest and Cohen's just basically like, no, I'm not. And just keeps walking. <laughs> just keeps walking. Wait, you're under arrest. No thanks, Dollface. I could shoot, you know. In this moment, it doesn't even really seem like she's gonna pursue him. She gives this, um, she gives this sigh as if like she were thinking, like, damn, he got me. He said, he said he isn't under arrest. I can't, I can't argue with that. But perhaps, perhaps it is a tribal tattoo. Bitches love tribal tattoos in the early aughts. So soon after Cohen exits the car, our favorite hasty asshole Edward Dewey is catapulted through the window and is fatally injured. As he lays there dying in the train car, he tells Rebecca to look out for herself as the forest is covered in zombies and monsters. For whatever reason, Rebecca has a hard time believing what just came out of this judgmental asshole's mouth, despite having a run-in with The Walking Dead a few minutes prior. And his warnings are confirmed as soon after two rotting Dobermans come crashing through the adjacent windows. After killing both of the dogs, Rebecca quickly backtracks towards the exit of the train when the captain radios her and tells her what we already know, that Cohen has killed 23 people. And again, Rebecca, having just read the info about 10 minutes ago, is in complete shock. Now... Perhaps Rebecca's nonchalant demeanor and childlike naivety is partly due to all that green herb she smokes. So throughout the game, I noticed that there are various herbs, green, red, and blue. These basically heal our characters. And you know, our real life analogous herbs have some sort of medicinal properties to them you know, especially the ones with the real fine red hairs. So to be fair, Rebecca is probably blasted out of her mind. And just like in 2018's indie horror film Hereditary, when the very stoned Alex Wolf realizes that he's done something very bad, Rebecca almost seems to realize her mistake of letting Cohen go. Even though Captain Marini says Cohen may kill her on sight, which we now know is a lie that lays somewhere between Rebecca's sweet ass and Cohen's giant ego. So we immediately know that there's more to Cohen than what we're led to believe. Seems to me that Sugimura is laying it on a little thick here. Now I was curious, and I, I took a look at Nobro Sugimura's writing credits. He's got a lot of well-known stuff under his belt. As far as games, uh, he's known for two other Capcom titles, the long-forgotten Dino Crisis and Animusha. But he's also written a lot for Japanese television as well. It's all mostly Super Sentai-adjacent series, but he also did a run on the hit anime loop in the third. Sugamura is certainly no slouch, but perhaps a little too much green herb also caused him to go a little light on the dialogue here. It also doesn't help that the voice acting here is... slightly above acceptable? Perhaps the actors just didn't know how to read the translated script correctly. At any rate, Rebecca runs into Cohen again, who has no problem calling her little girl, and even attempts to pet her. Let's put this in perspective. This guy is 26. He's not much older than Rebecca, who has to be at least 20 at this point. If this guy is being convicted of any crime, it isn't for killing 23 people. It's probably like, you know, the rape energy. Again, it's just some very, very strange dialogue mixed with uh, terrible voice performances. It all just seems very wrong. And for whatever reason, instead of calling for backup, maybe, you know, arresting Cohen and getting on to our adventure to hunt down cannibals. Instead, Rebecca decides to team up with Billy to get off the train, the train that they can very well walk out of at this point and carry on with the initial story. This is a little bit after Rebecca is confronted by an old man in first class who spills into a pile of leeches and then reforms once more as some sort of grotesque leech being otherwise known as Leechman in canon. Cohen does make himself useful here and saves Rebecca from the Leechman, thus kind of building a very thin layer of trust. Suddenly the train becomes operational and starts heading down the rails, a boxcar hobo's dream, and it's at this point where we can take control of both Rebecca and Cohen. Very interesting gameplay dynamic there. They can both roam the train as a team, or separately by themselves. It really does seem like Oda is just wearing his inspirations on his sleeve, because he's taking a lot of cues from Kurosawa's 1989 film and subsequent game adaptation, Sweet Home. Previous episode of the podcast, by the way. Wherein you could either explore an area with a team, or without. There's even some cute nods to Sweet Home as as you enter a new area with either uh, Rebecca or Cohen. There's these animations that play out, depending on what kind of door you've just opened. It's neat, if not annoying, after some time. Again, I think it's all just part of the atmosphere Oda is trying to create. Oftentimes, even as we get deeper into the game here, We can't even anticipate what may be on the other side of that door. So as we near the engine room, I think, what do you, I don't know, what's the main part of the train? Like the front, the front of the train. It's not the caboose. The conductor's room? The engine room? Maybe it's the conductor's room. Anyway, that part of the ecliptic express is locked. And so Rebecca and Cohen have to find a way in in order to stop the train. During their search, they are confronted by a giant scorpion? Dwayne Johnson, eat your heart out. The encounter just kind of seems real out of place and kind of breaks the immersion that we've had so far. This thing comes crashing through the roof of one of the train cars and overtakes literally the entire room. You know, up to this point, we've only been dealing with zombies and these leech men-esque like zombies. They're very similar to zombies. We've learned through scattered documents on the train that it is owned by this shady corporation, Umbrella, and had its very own employees on it. And now there's just this comically large scorpion, and it's attacking our unlikely duo? Either way, after we escape this encounter, Rebecca and Cohen eventually reach the conductor's car, and we cut away to a man Regaled in riot armor, communicating with two other men in an undisclosed area, surrounded by TV monitors, wondering how this mysterious T virus was leaked. We learn the virus was leaked onto the train and inside a nearby mansion, and is clearly carried by these leeches. At least, at least I think, right? Either way, this really cool dude who wears sunglasses indoors quickly wants to cover up both of these incidents for reasons. Now this guy is wearing a stars uniform, so the plot has definitely thickened, especially as he tells this doctor, I assume he's a doctor, I'm only assuming that because he's wearing a lab coat, Um, but Sunglasses guy tells Lab Coat Man to destroy the train. Later, Sunglasses Man also identifies Rebecca, so perhaps Rebecca also knows more than she's letting on here and so now we switch back to the train the guys in riot gear armed with semi-automatic rifles are taken down by the leeches safe to say that they probably would have fared a little bit better had they uh, been a spunky naive 20 year old and a tank top wearing tribal tattoo having rape a serial killer armed with pistols but whatever as the train rushes uncontrollably towards its destination our duo manages to activate the brakes just in time for it to slow down enough for them to survive its collision as it derails inside of a tunnel. Our characters make their way out of the tunnel through a ladder that leads them directly into a university, which Cohen has no problem identifying as the Umbrella Research Center. He also lays more suspicion upon himself, or as the kids say these days, he's getting real sus, uh, when he notices a large painting of an old man the old man that they encountered earlier on the train, who turned into one of these leech men, as the founder of Umbrella, Dr. James Marcus. It's at this point when Sunglasses Guy and Lab Coat Man start having issues with their monitors and their little uh, command center that they have set up, and our anime opera singer takes over the airwaves, not wanting anyone else to steal his mysterious thunder. He tells the two that uh, he released the T-Virus onto the train, as well as the mansion mentioned by Labcoat Man. So at least one loop is getting tied up here. His motive? Revenge on Umbrella Corporation. And his love for opera really shows here. He is really into opera, so much so he starts singing again, and a mob of leeches clump together to form the facade of Dr. Marcus himself. Anime Opera Man lays it out further, as good anime antagonists tend to do, and we learned that Dr. Marcus was murdered by the very same company he founded. And sunglasses guy and lab coat man were in on the whole thing. a good portion of the game takes place within the Umbrella Trading Facility. There's a deep well of lore here. So much that we may never see the bottom. Scattered throughout the university are documents, pictures, and diaries containing info on the facility itself, as well as what exactly was happening once the university became operational. In an effort to conserve time here, here is the history of all of this stuff in a nutshell. Umbrella founder Dr. Spencer and co-founder Dr. Marcus and a few other scientists within this circle took a trip to Europe in the 60s. It was there that they found and studied Sonnentrep daisies. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the word right, the, the type of flower that it is. Sonnentrep? Not sure. But this species of flowers carries a type of DNA, later called the progenitor virus. This strand of DNA carries the ability to repair and mutate dead cells. Realizing the potential that this can have on the human body, Spencer and his crew established umbrella pharmaceuticals. This would help soften the mortality rate of the test subjects as well as allowing private enterprises to study, research, and genetically modify the progenitor virus. Eventually, the founders opened their own labs around the globe and worked tirelessly to sell the virus as a biological organic weapon, or a B.O.W., to the United States military. One of these labs, the Spencer Mansion, located in the Arclay Mountains of Raccoon City. And nearby, co-founder and leech man himself, Dr. Marcus, would open and operate his own facility, the very same that our game takes place in. And so we have all these labs all over the globe working to create different types of strands of the T-virus. Throughout the 70s, the school was used to scout child prodigies, talent scouted by umbrella, following their early graduation from universities. These students were expected to become the next generation of executives, disciplined and well-versed in both business and scientific fields. At the school, they were taught, among others, biology, chemistry, sociology, and political science. Despite the academic achievements of the students, many did not fit the criteria Umbrella was looking for in its executive candidates. And both Marcus and the deputy director saw most of their students each year as useless. But among the rare exceptions were Dr. Albert Wesker and Dr. William Birkin who are later revealed to be Sunglasses Guy and lab Coat Man, respectively. As Marcus found a way to mutate the progenitor virus into the more potent T-virus, by introducing leech DNA to it to stave off the more cannibalistic qualities, he began working on the children that enrolled at the university. As we travel throughout the school, we see several dorm rooms with straps affixed to the beds, which themselves are stained in deep, dark blood. There are areas with chains hanging off the walls where Marcus would restrain his subjects and allow them to mutate. Other parts of the university are nearly unrecognizable, as they were altered to have the students endure different types of torture to determine what kind of abuse the virus can endure. Rebecca and Cohen eventually come upon the entrance to the underground lab, hidden well beneath the university where the remains of children are scattered about various places, including gas chambers, surgical rooms, animal cages, and also adorn the walls of Marcus's own office. Digging further into the lab, we encounter other hosts infected by the T-virus, including giant centipedes, ravenous monkeys, giant bats, spiders, frogs, and roaches. Dr. Marcus definitely had a thing for bugs, The university itself is very eerie. Again, the camera work within this setting is phenomenal, ensuring that you're not quite sure what's ahead. And this is also where the sound design comes in. It's not jaw-dropping or anything like that, but considering your line of sight can be hindered due to the camera, it's pretty important to be able to hear what may be lurking around the corner. Similar to the train, the university has, of course, a lot of hallways. There's not a lot of open areas, so it makes the entire journey feel very claustrophobic. The music within the mansion gave me a sense of uneasiness as well. Even after I had our duo, you know, execute everyone in the room, the music still remains, and it still gives you this sense that anything can happen. Let's tie up some loose ends here, right? Rebecca is contacted by the captain once again and asks if she's found Cohen. She lies to him and tells him that she hasn't. It's also around this time that we find out that while on a mission in Africa, Cohen was ordered to murder innocent civilians. Disobeying these orders, his squad carries out the order and the blame is put on him setting him up for the 23 murders that he's now known for. Rebecca, at this point, poor sweet Rebecca, finally gets it through her empty skull that Cohen didn't murder the convoy carrying him. Now my people think you killed those MPs in the van, but I don't think you did. It was those zombie dogs, right? When they attacked the van, you were able to escape. Isn't that right? Nearing the end of the game here, we find out Marcus and Wesker were having some trouble getting along 10 years prior to the events of Resident Evil Zero. Wesker and Birkin were ultimately transferred to the Spencer mansion to leave Marcus alone working on his specific strand of the T virus. Dr. Spencer catches wind of the research Dr. Marcus is doing and feels threatened by the success he's having, as well as the doctor's deteriorating mental stability. Spencer arranged for a successful assassination of Umbrella's co-founder, and subsequently ordered Wesker and Birkin to return to the research center and steal all of Dr. Marcus's research and specimens. Realizing that the anime opera singer clearly has ties to the deceased co-founder, and that the leeches pose an enormous threat, Birkin enacts a plan to activate the research center's self-destruct sequence while... Wesker leaves to lure the rest of the S.T.A.R.S. members to the Spencer Mansion. Do as you wish. I will follow my initial plan and lure the S.T.A.R.S. members into the mansion. Their superior combat training should make them perfect test subjects. (laughs) Fine. In the meantime, something must be done about that madman. As I recall, U.R.C. is equipped with a self-destruct device in the basement. I'll find it set it off, and annihilate the place to nothing more than a massive rubble. Rebecca and Cohen ultimately come upon one of the advanced military BOW projects, a tyrant. This tyrant, um, specifically is model T-001, a mere prototype that Umbrella considers to be a failure due to its defective nervous system and reduced intelligence this guy is fucking gigantic. He's fast and incredibly strong. His entire right arm is completely mutated and has several massive spikes on it. His flesh is decayed and looks severely damaged and it looks as though his heart and a few other organs are completely exposed. Nevertheless, our duo encounters this big fella at least twice, and it's safe to say that in the end, the tyrant goes up in smoke when the university explodes. But before that happens, Rebecca and Cohen are about to take a lift up to the surface, and they come face-to-face with their anime opera singer. And just like every good anime antagonist, he waxes poetically about why he specifically unleashed the virus and wants his revenge on Umbrella. Simply put, Our anime opera singer is Umbrella co-founder Dr. Marcus. Dr. Marcus? No, you can't be. What's going on? (laughs) Ten years ago, Spencer had me assassinated. Definitely not the biggest twist in gaming history. Again, it's it's implied and laid on pretty thick, but either way, when Umbrella dumped his body into the treatment plant, along with the parasitic queen he was experimenting on, the leech found his corpse and attached her DNA to his, basically resurrecting him. This gave him the ability to alter his appearance and imbuing him with an exquisitely delightful operatic voice. Unfortunately, the queen inside of him takes full control at this point and mutates him into a massive, hideous green monster. Only armed with firepower, and unfortunately no napkins because this thing is slimy, our duo realizes that the queen is susceptible to sunlight. As Cohen faces off with the monster, Rebecca opens up a series of shutters to weaken the monster. The sunlight coming down stops the monster just enough for Cohen to plant a magnet bullet deep inside of her... skull? Carapace? I don't know the anatomy of a leech, but he fucking yeets this monster. And so the short-sightedness of the queen being distracted by Rebecca and Cohen ultimately gets her blown up as the university is nuked from the inside out. Which looks pretty fucking awesome if I might add. Atop one of the bluffs, Rebecca spots the nearby Spencer Mansion, a location she recalls that Captain Marini ran off to mid-mission which is something I completely forgot to mention. We, we run into Captain uh, Marini pretty late into the game. He once again asks Rebecca if she has found Cohen, which begs the question, was he running around the university also looking for Cohen? And you know, it, it took me quite some time to solve all the puzzles and find my way through the facility. How the hell did he get through it before I did? Either way, Rebecca doesn't completely lie to him at this point since her and Cohen literally just separated when Cohen is attacked by a mutated monkey and falls off of a tram. When the captain tells her that they need to get to the Spencer mansion to check out those cannibal murders, you know, the entire plot and original mission Bravo team were sent to investigate all the way in the beginning of the story. You know, that that thing. Instead, Rebecca pleads with Marini that she needs to find Cohen. And then all of a sudden, this weird, soft piano music starts playing. It's it's just real weird. It's real awkward. Wait, I've got to find Billy. Billy Cohen. You mean you found that criminal? Yes, but we got separated and no point worrying about him. He won't make it. Come on, let's go. Sir, please. I need to find him. Don't worry. I'll catch up with you. Rebecca. All right. Just be careful. And for whatever reason, Marini, Rebecca's captain, her boss, just drops it. And he's like, yeah, all right. We'll meet up at the mansion later. You, you go on. It, clearly, Captain Marini definitely wasn't on the debate team in high school. Like, let's not I mean, even though we lost sight of the original mission, which all of a sudden we care about, Cohen was supposed to be executed. He was known, you know, despite us finding out his past. Marini doesn't know any of that. All we know is that he is a prisoner. He's to be executed. And the facility is crawling with gigantic spiders and mutated lizard knives. Pretty sure Cohen won't survive by himself. And it's at that point where you where you think, oh, we're just going to be able to save taxpayers money by not having to supply the prison with gas. It's a win win. And so we're here at the final scene of the game. Rebecca takes Cohen's dog tags, which begs the question why he had them in the first place when he was already apprehended and being transported to carry out a death sentence. They don't just arrest you off the street and immediately take you to a gas chamber. He had to have been in custody for at least a couple of years prior to the events of this story. Anyway, Rebecca takes his tags and vows to tell Bravo Team uh, that Cohen died in the explosion. The two salute each other, part ways, and credits roll. to chew on here. If Capcom were ever inclined to, I would welcome a prequel to this initial entry in the series. I don't know where you go from zero. You know, now that I think about it, Resident Evil Zero kind of sounds like a prequel title. Again, very strange naming decision. So I suppose if they ever did a prequel, would it be called Resident Evil Negative One? There's not a lot of documentation on either Wesker or Birkin. Wesker is clearly part of S.T.A.R.S. as he's in uniform the entire time. You know, I want to know, is he still working for Umbrella? Is he working with S.T.A.R.S.? It's not really clear where his allegiance lies. On one hand, he's okay with the destruction of the training facility and the train and spreading the virus further, and keeping what happened to Dr. Marcus under wraps. But on the other hand, he has no problem leading his star's colleagues to certain death. The last time we see Wesker, that's his intention. And Birkin doesn't seem that important. There's some mention of a virus that he's working on called the G-Virus, but it's only name-dropped once or twice, and then we never hear about it again. At least we know that Birkin is still working with Umbrella, It will be interesting to see where these two end up in the sequels, and uh, hopefully we get a little more fleshed out story for these guys. The intertwining story here is kind of interesting. It's better than the main villain, Dr. Marcus's revenge plot. Uh, But to me, I mean, none of these three villains are very provocative at all. Even less engaging are our two heroes. Even though early on in the game, (laughs) Cohen... Screams rape energy. It does kind of subside once we're in the middle of the school. And I'm glad that Rebecca doesn't succumb to any of this douchebaggery as, you know, she stands her ground every time Cohen goes full fuckboy. Her resolve is compelling, but her decisions are just straight up bad. All of Bravo Team's judgment is just awful. It's any wonder how any of them survived in the first place, which is to say, besides Rebecca, we only do see Captain Marini alive, no mention of the others, which I can presume if we're not seeing them. They're probably dead, and i you know I say this lightly, but Billy Cohen seems to have. The better backstory of our two protagonists. We don't really get a backstory for Rebecca other than she's just incredibly smart, despite us experiencing a number of ludicrous mistakes that she makes throughout the game. Despite him being a, a huge fucking creep, he is sort of likable by the end of the story, if not slightly an edgelord. The tribal tattoo honestly doesn't help his case, but I'm, uh, I'm more excited to see where he ends up in the sequels than I am Rebecca. And I guess, lastly, what I want to talk about at the end of these episodes is if the game scared me. And there were moments when I jumped. The the Leechmen specifically are scripted encounters, and each one is kind of a surprise. At one point in the lab, either Cohen or Rebecca have to explore the second floor by themselves. You enter one of the rooms that houses like security footage and the side that you enter on has shelves with uh, film reels and tapes on it. And the other side of the room has a few tables and monitors because the camera is static, which again, I fucking loved the second you round the corner to enter the area with like the monitors, the camera immediately flips to a different perspective and just bam. There's just a leech man standing right in the fucking corner. And the music that accompanies these monsters is incredibly nerve wracking. Otherwise, all the other monsters are whatever. The zombies aren't particularly scary and all the giant mutated bugs are like gross, but they're not scary. A lot of these monsters just kind of seem like a weird gimmick. I don't know. As I stated before the atmosphere of the university is incredibly suspenseful, especially in the areas where there's music playing, though the complete lack of music or the the ambient noise in some parts does give the school a unique eerie effect. All in all, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty creepy game. For as humdrum as the story is, I actually cannot wait to dive into the sequel, Resident Evil, on the next episode. And yeah, we're dropping the number convention already. That's something that we'll get into uh, on the next episode. So just so you're aware, there won't be an episode in this series next month. There's already a ton of content coming out in December, so all that leaves me is to thank you guys for listening, and I will see you guys again with another episode in the bitter cold of January with Resident Evil.